This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Join the conversation and message Buck on Facebook, Instagram, or email teambuck at iheartmedia.com. He may read it on the show. I really do think it's depressing that we all expect things to just get worse in Minneapolis, and we, we expect that this will spread to other cities. Uh, we should be able to have a national conversation or at least have some kind of understanding that we, the American people, all want justice and that there needs to be a, a cooling of passions and tempers here because a lot of innocent people are going to get hurt otherwise. But instead, it's just it seems so clear that the wave of mayhem and anarchy is just going to continue to build up and the Democrat, a Democrat demagoguery around all this is just going to get worse. But, you know, these days, what you see online is so already curated and skewed because the big tech censors are making sure that you can only say certain things and everything that you do online is public in a sense. Right. So tech has become so advanced now that if you're using your PC, your computer, any place and you're accessing public Wi-Fi, what you're doing online, what you're doing on your computer is just as easy to see by someone else the right technology as you seeing it yourself. Kind of takes away the whole notion of what a personal computer or PC should be. Your activities, your data may, lo- may no longer really be personal, right? The bad guys can get to it. ExpressVPN gives you easy-to-use software to download and keep what's private private on your computer and your smartphone. A VPN is a virtual private network, private being the keyword here, okay? It costs less than 6 bucks a month. It installs a layer of privacy for all your devices. So when you send an email, you're working online, it's much more secure. It's like the difference between mailing a postcard and mailing a letter. ExpressVPN is akin to that sealed envelope, keeps your communications and actions private. ExpressVPN, that's where you want to go. Download the service today for less than $6 a month. Give yourself privacy on five of your devices. Go to expressvpn.com slash buck. That's expressvpn.com dot com slash buck and you'll get three extra months free on a one-year package expressvpn.com slash buck they surrounded the police station in brooklyn center if you've seen the photos of it if you see what's going on here it looks like they're prepared for a protracted siege you have law enforcement officers that have nothing to do with the specific incident of the shooting the killing of Dante Wright, who are being attacked by angry people in a mob. Antifa, self-described Antifa members now showing up. This is a lit match thrown into a tinderbox sitting atop a big pool of gasoline. This is a highly combustible situation right now. And everyone needs to just take a step back and think about what's really going on here. The city of Minneapolis has already been through far too much. And the rest of the country has dealt with the reverberations. As you recall, last summer, there were BLM protests that broke out across the country. And it needs to be said more. More people need to know this, need to hear this, that in a year of a pandemic where we had lockdowns and we had people interacting less, far fewer people than in living memory going to bars and restaurants and subways and being out in public places. So you should expect that the violence rate in the country would be far, far lower than in previous years. Instead, what we had was a massive spike. 
a rise of murders and other violent crimes, including rapes, sexual assaults, uh, assault with a deadly weapon, a rise across the country not seen in over 20 years. The worst murder rate they're expecting, they still compile the numbers and they'll give us the official date, I believe, in September. The worst murder rate since 1995 nationwide. And there's one major factor in all of this. The George Floyd police incident in Minneapolis, his death, the riots that ensued afterwards, the undermining of police, the call to defund police and communities becoming less safe as a result. People suffer because of these bad ideas. People suffer because of these lies. We all need to understand this. We need to be honest about it. I know right now that there is that cheap virtue signaling going on all over the place by people who live in safe communities who don't know crime from a firsthand experience and who think that standing in solidarity with rioters and looters is somehow making anything better. It actually just makes everything worse. But the ruling class and the elites, uh, members of the Democrat Party, Silicon Valley, corporate America, they are very clear in where their sympathies lie. And there's also, it seems, very little willingness to say to people, stop being reckless, stop saying things that are not true. People with major platforms. Cory Bush, member of Congress, tweeted this out about Officer Potter, who has already resigned and who is now facing criminal culpability. There have been about 15 of these taser firearm mistake shootings that have occurred uh, over the last decade or so. So this has happened before. And in most of the cases, there was no criminal charge, especially if the person, uh, if, if no one was killed. In a couple of cases, there have been criminal charges. And Officer Potter may very well get an involuntary manslaughter charge as a result. But uh, that's already in process, right? There, there is a, an accountability that is going on here. That will never be true justice in the sense that you can't bring back Dante Wright. There's nothing to bring him back to stop that tragic uh, accident from happening. But here's what Cori Bush, member of the House Representative, said about all this. That, that she, or rather, she tweeted this. The 26-year veteran cop, former president of the police union, doesn't know the difference between a taser and a gun. And you say more training would have fixed this? Nah, but I bet you would have known the difference if Dante wasn't a black boy or if he was her loved one, end quote. That's from uh, Representative Cory Bush. That is a inciting, unfair, and deeply unhelpful thing to say right now. There is absolutely no evidence whatsoever of racial animus in this incident. In fact, if anything, what we see on video is someone who is clearly trying to do one thing, makes an awful mistake that she is responsible for, and then realizes the the error that she's just committed and, and the, the tragedy that ensued and knows that it's too late and she can't take that bullet back. But this has happened before. The timing of this, I mean, beyond just the fact that it's a tragedy in and of itself, but the timing of this right before we're expected to hear about the George Floyd verdict. I mean, it, rather the Derek Chauvin verdict about the death of George Floyd, which is next week. I mean, the jury could be deliberating as soon as next week. Right now, it would be hard to think of a more tense situation. 
And people who have platforms, people who have have power here in the national conversation should use it responsibly. But we shouldn't expect that to happen. Not with today's Democrat Party. We've got an open border. We've got out of control spending. We've got real fears of inflation. People are starting to wise up to the fact that the Fauci consensus is never going to just let us go back to normal, that they're not even really thinking there is such a thing as everyone just stops wearing masks and lives their lives, that they're not going to give up that control. People are starting to see through this Biden administration. And so what do they want here? That's right. An issue of racial justice, according to the left, to rally around to make it seem like there is a righteous cause for the left. When in this case, in this reality, what they're going to do is just create excuses for more destruction, violence and anarchy in the streets. What was better as a result of BLM riots last year? What improved? Oh, they they got the main demand, which was defunding of police in some cities and crime soared and people died and misery spread. It's very straightforward. The cops are not the problem. All right. We, we have to be adults in America. We, we have to be willing to say things that are obviously true. We have to fight this effort to shut down your ability to observe what you know to be true. There is a war on observation going on right now. You can't see what's actually true and not true about lockdowns and vaccine policies and all the rest of it. Shut up and do what you're told. You can't see and come to your own conclusions about how crime is getting worse and how BLM activists buy million dollar mansions for themselves while they're actually supposed to be, you know, helping poor, uh, poor communities and dealing with police relations. Right. You're not allowed to notice these things. You're told what to think. And if you disagree, you're shouted down. They're not even trying to convince you of anything anymore. And you're certainly not supposed to notice that BLM as a movement has blood on its hands. You look at what's happened over the last year, over the last 12 months, and because of the defunding of police, because of the change in perception about community police relations and the fact that law enforcement does not feel backed up in their jobs, more people are dead than would otherwise be. More people have suffered. What exactly is gained by all this? Defund police, which I know Ben and Jerry's, the ice cream company, has now said that they, they want to abolish police. Uh, look, they're they're a bunch of of morons who have done far too much to push type two diabetes on the country. OK, we by the way, boycott them. L- let me just throw that out there right now. Don't eat that ice cream. If every person who had a rational view of America in the country who was center right said, I'm not going to buy any more Ben and Jerry's. They may actually feel that a little bit. They may actually realize, shut up and make my, you know, Oreo cookie swirl or whatever it is, whatever they make. I usually can't eat it because they have gluten in a lot of their ice cream. That's the truth. We, we need to take action or else this stuff continues. Defund the police is moronic. It's a stupid thing to say. There are bad people in this country. There are bad, violent, destructive people of all races and backgrounds. And we all need to be universally held to account for our actions. We cannot break the law. If we become a lawless society, the foundation upon which everything else is built, all of our prosperity and all the good, fun stuff out there and all the systems that we benefit from every day, they all start to crumble if we don't have rule of law. And we are all responsible as individuals, as human beings for our actions. 
There is no license to loot or riot or attack. And getting rid of cops is the dumbest thing I have ever heard in a public policy debate. It's honestly the stupidest thing I've ever heard. What what are we going to do then? We're going to start sending in social workers? Have they thought this through? Do they think that unarmed social workers are going to want to be involved in violent domestic disputes? You're, You're going to send in a social worker if somebody's... Calling uh, calling the police because they're worried that there could be a a drive by in their neighborhood. I'm glad the social worker will be there to say, hey, let's all be nice to each other while the bullets are flying over their heads. Could it be any dumber? No, but this is where the Democrat Party is now. Reckless demagoguery, brainwashing and stupidity on a national scale to pretend they care so much about minority communities You know all these MSNBC Anchors who are millionaires who live in very safe areas, who send their kids to private schools. They're the first ones to tell you, oh, but, you know, we don't need so much police, really. They should spend a few nights in the highest crime areas of major cities, especially these days, and walk around the streets and see how they feel about cops after that. I have a feeling it would change their tunes. But it's just a bunch of virtue signaling cowards. Just reveling in their demagoguery. That's what they do, and that's what they care about. The full text of of of, what, of your request, uh, and uh, make sure that you know we sit down and 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 go through it and and see how we can implement. Uh, I I don't believe that officers need to necessarily uh, have weapons. Uh, you know, uh, every time they they're they're making a, a traffic stop. Uh, or, or engaged in uh, situations that don't necessarily call for uh, for weapons. We know that there are other many other jurisdictions, or even around the world, where uh, that is not you know necessarily the case. It's not needed. So that's the mayor of Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, which, as I understand it, has been a place that's very much deteriorated over the last uh, ten or fifteen years, and much higher crime, and. Uh, this is this is someone who has a public platform, has public power and trust, who's saying something that is just uh, is just shockingly stupid, but also somewhat commonplace these days to say things that no rational person would think is a good idea. Yes, because we have we've had a major surge in violent crime in the country the last year. Now's the time in a country with hundreds of millions of firearms in circulation already. Now's the time to tell cops. Do your jobs, but don't be armed. That's what the guy's saying. Yeah, for traffic stops, don't don't be armed. Um, perhaps the, the this this individual doesn't spend much time on the internet. He would know that a New Mexico state police officer, Darian Jarrett, was uh, murdered just over the weekend. You didn't you didn't hear a lot about this one. Not a lot of solidarity marches, and not a lot of people walking around trying to. Raise awareness about the risk that law enforcement law enforcement takes. Omar Felix Cueva uh, had a rifle and executed officer Darian Jarrett at close range during a routine daylight traffic stop. But sure, let's give our cops even less of a chance. Anytime they pull over somebody who has an outstanding warrant for a violent crime like, oh, that's right. As we've now found out, because the stories 
are never accurate in the early hours about the victims. When BLM decides that somebody is one of their hallowed victims, one of the one of the martyrs of the movement, the initial stories are never really true about their background. That that's always the case. There's there's this, you know, we at first it's usually the person's, uh, you know, a family man, an honor student and everything else. And then when we say, well, hold on a second, this person actually, in the case of George Floyd, for example, held a gun to a pregnant woman's belly during a home invasion. They say that doesn't matter. Well, it mattered when we had all these photos of somebody, you know, either in their high school graduation cap and gown or when we're being told that they were an honor student or a family man or a hardworking person or whatever it is. That's all to be said. But then we find out the person either resisted arrest, had a long criminal history, had a violent criminal history. In the case of Dante Wright, the individual, uh, this individual um, held a gun to a woman and tried to rob eight hundred dollars from her. OK, that's that, you know, armed, armed robbery. But if you talk about this, it's, uh, you're, you're, it's a problem. And understand this, that doesn't change anything about the culpability of the officer, Officer Potter. But it does affect the narrative and the perception of how these events affect society, of how people should view these these situations. Same thing where, where you bring up, you know, resisting arrest. It is possible to say don't resist arrest, comma, and this officer made a terrible mistake. Those are both true statements. You should not resist arrest. You should not violently fight with cops when they're trying to arrest you. And you if you're a cop, you got to be able to discern even in very tense moments between your taser and your firearm or else you shouldn't be a cop. It's, it's that simple. I remember when, you know, when I was when I was overseas, it was just on all, all the bases. I mean, an A.D. if you got an and I mean an A.D. out on the range, accidental discharge, an A.D., you know, walk into the to the dining hall or whatever. If, if you fire off around by accident, you were you were going home. Basically, you were done, even if no one was hurt. So, you know, that's the it's a cardinal rule of firearm safety. And, and obviously, Officer Potter is, is paying in her own way a, a very high price for this. But we're going to we're going to now disarm. It was defund police. Now it's going to be disarm police. Who's going to want to take these jobs? I know there's a lot of law enforcement that listens to this show all across the country. And I, I, I couldn't I couldn't tell them in good in good faith. Yeah. Keep doing your job, especially if you're in a relatively high crime area. You know, I mean, I have I have a, an uncle who is a police officer in, in South Central for 15 years. Police officer in South Central Los Angeles. I'm going to tell him to walk around without a firearm and, and to go up to people and get involved in disputes and and pull them over and try to write them a ticket and try to, you know, one of the most dangerous things cops do is, in fact, traffic stops. But you see, the voices out there right now that get attention from the Democrat media aren't people who actually know anything about law enforcement, about use of force incidents. They're people that appeal to the masses with their emotions. You know, they're, they're, they're the people on MSNBC who just oh, they're just channeling all this emotion right now. But then they say things that end up hurting people when they're implemented. There are negative consequences to bad ideas, something we always have to remember. This stuff is not without a cost, but the people who bear the cost are not, you know, wealthy upper middle class journalists or well off or wealthy uh, TV news anchors or or people who are making PR decisions at big corporations. No, they don't pay the price. No, instead, the people that are the most likely to suffer from violent crimes in the neighborhoods in the first place, 
their percentages just go up. And when things get worse and that sense of of misery and foreboding that exists. And I mean, I've I've spent because of my time in the NYPD considerable time in the the actual worst neighborhoods in New York City. And I can tell you that it feels like a different place than the wealthier or even just more run of the mill parts in terms of crime of New York City. And I I wish some of these journos would do the same because maybe they would shut their mouths. There's so much you're just not allowed to say about covid and lockdowns. It's very frustrating, as you know, it's been one of the things that's made me particularly angry at the uh, big tech corporations. I mean, I'm I think I'm one of the most vocal anti Fauci voices out there. And I know there are some others and I I appreciate them, by the way. I feel a real solidarity with them. Um, But I I've got to tell you the way that big tech has weighed in on this stuff. It's just appalling. It's awful Uh, the way that they've shut down free and open exchange of ideas. And you know that if you've tried to share your political opinions in general these days, it's really difficult to have a civil conversation. You get attacked by trolls. You get swarmed by lunatics. Well, that's why there's caucusroom.com. This is a social media network exclusively for conservatives. Caucusroom is an online community for conservatives to gather and engage locally. Only real people who are verified conservatives can become caucusroom members. But caucusroom will never share your information with anyone ever. A sign-up process ensures you're communicating with real conservatives in your neighborhood, no bots or trolls. It's a great way to get engaged on issues where you can make the dif- uh, where you can make the biggest difference locally. At Caucus Room, you can pr- uh, participate in live virtual meetings, and you know you can actually reach out to people in your area. Caucus Room is made by conservatives for conservatives to get organized and make a difference. Join the Buck Sexton Listeners Group on CaucusRoom.com. That's C-A-U-C-U-S. R-O-O-M dot com to interact with other listeners just like you. Caucusroom.com. Let's talk about if you have received the J&J vaccine. A lot of folks are probably wondering, what should I do? What should I look out for? What's your advice to them? Well, the advice, the first bit of advice is really don't worry very much because just as we said, it's a very, very rare event. That's the first thing. The second thing, the bracket of time when this occurs was between six and 13 days. So it's between one and two weeks. So if you got your vaccine several weeks ago, then it makes it even less likely that you should have any concern at all. If you've had it within a few days, just stay heads up for symptoms, severe headache, abdominal pain, chest pain, things like that. But again, underscoring Savannah, it is a very, very rare event. So you don't want people who've just received the vaccine to be overly worried about this. This is a rare occurrence. The pause is just as an abundance of caution to really scope out the situation a little bit more closely. The pause is an abundance of caution. You know, you got to mitigate because there could be a diminution of the parabolic upswing of the hypotheses of the isosceles triangle. And, you know, I really do feel like sometimes this guy is just broken into a few high school textbooks and wants to just throw out a bunch of a bunch of sciencey sounding jargon, math and science jargon at us. You know, when, when you have Savannah, you get the shot. And when the photosynthesis kicks in and you have deoxyribonucleic acid that is a part of the overall, you know, Darwinian notion of it. Just just 
blabber, right? That the, but people go, oh, Dr. Fauci, he's so smart. Dr. Fauci, he's so smart. He's such a smart man. W- what are we doing? So now it's don't worry. It, yesterday was pause the vaccine. Now it's don't worry. And, and I, I just want to say, when I tell you guys, because I'm thinking about this all the time, and I know I get, I get a lot of feedback from you all, and I, I want the feedback. I want you to tell me what you think about what we're doing here. You, you are this show. This show is for you, and I want to know what you're thinking. So send us a, a, an email at teambuck at iheartmedia.com or send me a message on Facebook or Instagram. Just type in Buck Sexton. I'm what comes up. Send a message. I see it. Producer Mark sees it, too, but I see it. And because on the vaccines, I want to be very clear. I'm not trying to, you know, push anyone or bully anyone or anything. People say, Buck, why would you get the vaccine? You've already had COVID. And I say, I know. Isn't it so stupid? The only reason that I would get that I'm scheduled to get a vaccine in about 60 days. So in a, in a while, because I do. Have, I've got antibodies in my system. I've already had the virus. And in a short period of time, I'm going to introduce that same immune response through this, you know, genetic coding response or whatever i mean very just you know very few people really understand how these vaccines actually work this is not your standard this isn't putting just dead virus into your system this is something else uh but but the reason that i've said i would do it and i'm not trying to push anybody else here i'm just saying because i in new york where i currently live and my family is and where i work they have already started to experiment with vaccine passports and you know so i'm willing to take the risk uh, more so so I can live a normal I, I can live a normal life. But I, I, I agree with some of you say, well, isn't that a little bit? I mean, I'm so anti mask, as you know, outdoor masking, moronic, zero reason to do that. Indoor masking and limited circumstances at some times, you know, maybe. But in general, uh, I mean, I think mask mandates don't work. I think mask mandates are a disaster. And I think that masking is the initial knee bending that leads to all this other madness in our society. I actually shared this was actually this is great. I shared on uh, on Twitter today. If you haven't, you probably also all should be following me on Twitter, please, uh, if you're not already. And it's this. It was almost exactly a year ago. It was like a year and a week ago. There was a piece in The Washington Post. I'm just waiting for this to I'm just waiting for this to be uh taken down or for social media companies to come after me this is the it's right below the democracy dies in darkness you know header in the washington post everyone wore flu masks during the 1918 i'm sorry everyone wore masks during the 1918 flu pandemic they were useless that was in the washington post a year ago Everyone wore masks during the 1918 flu pandemic. They were useless. That was the headline. Not that they didn't work that well. Useless. And you know what that line is? That line is taken from the considered the seminal work, work of history on the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. The author just writes, look, they did this everywhere. Didn't do a damn thing. But people were obsessed. And there was mask fashion and there was you know, mask, all kinds of stuff, right? Oh, you know, how do you, where does your, uh, where should you shave your mustache? A lot of mustaches back then. Where should you save, shave your mustache so that it doesn't affect your mask and all this stuff? And they were useless was the quote. Now, if I say that today, I get kicked off social media and treated like a troglodyte. But this was in the Washington Post, friends, a year ago. 
And what's amazing is the sheeple out there, they they see stuff like this. And when I point this out to them or, I, of course, show them the Fauci lines from a year ago, you know, you know, it may it may actually make you feel a little better. But, you know, when you're out in the crowd, uh, you know, it doesn't really do anything to wear a mask. They say, well, Buck, the science has changed. Oh, yeah. How? And then they point to some uh, some not a not real world study. They point to essentially spraying water through a mask and saying, well, there's less vapor. So since there's less vapor, there's there's you know, it's effective at stopping the virus. And, and then you show them all these CDC studies. There was a big one. I think it was up in Canada because they say, well, doctors wear them. And you say, OK, well, the CDC study from up in Canada about masks during flu season for dentists specifically for for dental personnel showed the dentists who wear masks during procedures versus those who don't no change in the transmission for for those healthcare personnel during the flu season and it was a pretty big and that's a real world study and there's tons of this out there if you want to see it the danish mask study oh well that you know sure it didn't stop people from getting it but you could not give it to another person if you have it on and they have it there's always there's always an excuse, right? There's always an excuse. The CDC numbers on mask mandates within the margin of error. That's how well the mandate works. But you can't bring this up. Yeah, I'm not I'm not letting this go because, friends, they're, they're trying to change the wiring in our brains with all this stuff. They are making you a compliant little stooge. And I hate it. I resent it. Every, and they do it to me, too, because you'll say, well, Buck, do you wear a mask in New York? I have they will evict me from my home if I don't. I will be kicked out of the grocery store. I will I will get, you know, even more dad bod going on here without even being a dad because I can't go to the gym. All these things will happen. I have no I have no choice. And if they call the police, the police will enforce against me. They will arrest me. Right. So I, I am I am not conceding to their argument. I'm conceding to their superior force. I tried. I went maskless for months and months and months. Then I was told, yo, man, everyone's complaining about you. This is getting out of control. Oh, and by the way, since I got the virus two months ago, when I was walking around with no mask on, was I ever infected? No. Did I ever put anyone at risk? We know for a fact, scientifically, no, I did not. Never. There was no risk. Zero risk. But you're not allowed. See, once again, you're not allowed to observe. There's a war on observation right now that the Democrats and the left are waging. You don't know what you're seeing. You don't know what's really happening. You're not allowed to even say, hold on a second. They're pausing a vaccine. If you had called for a vaccine pause on your Facebook page two weeks ago, if you had said, guys, I just I've read some data on Johnson and Johnson and, you know, something's going on here. We got to really look into this. Boom, Facebook would lock you out. They'd shut you down. They'd take your account away. Think of the effect that that has on our conversation about this. This is the new public square. They are the phone company, you know, circa 1950. This is how people communicate and they control it. The biggest enemies of free speech and free expression in the country right now are the most powerful platforms of communication in the world. This is the great irony we're dealing with. But the the point I'm making about the vaccines is 
Does that change the thinking at all for the people that believe that they have all this figured out? Does that does that change the hubris and the arrogant mentality of those who say, oh, I just listened to the science. I just listened to Fauci. How many times did those guys get to be wrong before a normal person would say, hmm, maybe something's up here. Now, I, I saw, for example, uh, the Tucker monologue last Tucker did a monologue last night on this. And he kept saying, why do they want us to wear masks after we're vaccinated? He posed this question and he didn't get to. I know what their their answer is. Even after vaccination, there's a tiny percentage of people who could still get infected. Five percent by the Pfizer numbers, whatever it is. And so if it saves just one life, this is the this is the wellspring of all the tyranny. If it could theoretically save just one life, you have to deal with this. For our health policy, Fauciism, the Fauciite consensus is the speed limit must now be 10 miles an hour. That is what has happened in this country where the speed limit now must be 10 miles an hour. And if you don't like it, you can't drive. You can't leave your home, actually, and we'll arrest you if you do anything else. It's not the country I want to live in. It's not a country I'm going to accept either. And the, the, the grubby little fingers of the statist authoritarian Democrats here, uh, they're, not take, they're not taking their hands off the wheels of power. They're not going to do it. They want to control you. They want to keep this going as long as possible. They like you compliant. They like you scared. Stay home. Wear a mask. Don't see people. Do what we tell you. Get whatever shots we tell you. Mm. Do you think that that upsets the nanny state leftists? Or is this a dream come true in terms of the power they have? It could be that possibly someone who's had COVID like myself, could they be reinfected? There are very small numbers of it. But guess what? Almost none of them are really getting sick. You're not, you're not reading stories of, oh, my goodness, thousands of people being reinfected. And they're in the hospital and they're dying. Those stories don't exist. You'll read about a random, very rare person getting reinfected or getting infected when they've been vaccinated. But the good news is, is that even if you got infected from COVID after you've been vaccinated, you have some immunity, a partial immunity, and it lessens the uh, degree or uh, significance of the disease. So these, I, almost everything out there is good news. This is why I so much think Dr. Fauci should be voluntarily removed from TV because what he says is such a disservice and such fear-mongering, and almost all of what he says isn't even matched by the science of his own institute. So really what we need to do is hear from a lot of different experts, and then people need to realize that the risk factors are different depending on your age. You mentioned the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Very, very safe. And if you're over 80, without question, it's the only one you can get, take it. If you're over 70, take it. But it does depend on your age. If you're under 25, the chance yeah. of dying from this is one in a million. So it, your risk factors do depend on whether you judge, whether you take a vaccine. It's not the same for everybody. Everything Senator Rand Paul is saying there is provably demonstrably true but do you ever do you ever hear this i mean they've there have been teachers unions that as part of their demands and the teachers unions have just shown what a disgraceful disgusting mess they are in the past year just just thuggish democrat political machinery it's all the teachers unions are good for uh but the the the, the truth here with everything that's going on the truth of, of the situation is uh, that we can't have real conversations about risk. We can't actually have real discussions about who's at risk and who's not. They wanted children. Teachers Union wanted children 
to get vaccinated. Why? Kids? The kids are fine. But what they do is they say, that's not true. Kids can still get it. And they'll point and they'll say, look, you know, a hundred children have died, believed to have died from COVID in the United States. Okay. I mean, that's a hundred children out of a country of 330 million people. There are viruses that, you know, that are that are floating around in the air all the time that kids can still get. They can die. We, we have to accept that there's not a zero mortality future from COVID. That's not realistic. That's not going to happen. Just like there's not a zero mortality from flu future for the world. So, you know, the, the, the people that have pushed for all this stuff, the, the lockdowners, you got to understand what their next moves are going to be. We keep seeing these reports. Oh, the vaccines uh, are effective for six months. Okay, what happens then? We're gonna are we supposed to go through this every year? Oh, and you know you you, you can't actually see people and do things. You got to get the second. And then what? What about when the booster you know doesn't work on the new variant or something? I mean, you're just gonna we're all gonna go insane. I mean, we're all just gonna completely lose our minds over this stuff over time. And I think a lot of people have. I believe that mass media has combined to create uh, com- combined with mass hysteria to create the environment we're currently living in. Um, you've never had so many hysterics able to reach out and talk to so many other hysterics at one point in human history. Speaking of hysterics, here's CNN with their, I guess he's still unpaid as a contributor, but Dr. Fauci, who really, you know, he's, I know he's at the uh, National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, but he really should just be Chiron as favorite CNN and MSNBC guest. Because uh, they're all so emotionally and professionally invested in this guy not being a little tyrannical moron, which I think he is. Uh, but here's CNN talking about what Tucker said on his monologue, which I brought up before. Play six. TV personality Tucker Carlson said on TV about vaccines in general. He said if the vaccine, if vaccines are effective, there's no reason for people who have received the vaccine to wear masks or avoid physical contact. So maybe it doesn't work. And they're simply not telling you that. Let me repeat that again. So maybe it doesn't work, and they're simply not telling you that. What do you have to say to Tucker Carlson? Yeah. Uh, That's just a typical crazy conspiracy theory. Why would we not tell people if it doesn't work? Look at the data. The data are overwhelming. In the three vaccines that have been approved for use in an emergency use authorization, the J&J the Pfizer and the Moderna, you had 30,000, 44,000 and 40,000 people in a clinical trial with an overwhelming signal of efficacy. So I don't have any idea what he's talking about. How dangerous is it for a TV personality like that who does have an audience of millions to, to speculate about something like that? Well, it's certainly not helpful to the public health of this nation or even globally. You know, I don't want to get into arguments about Tucker Carlson, but it, it, to me, it's just, you know, it's counter to what we were trying to accomplish to protect the safety and the health of the American public. Why can't that little fascist tell us when we can stop wearing masks? When? Give us a date or give us the numbers. Give us the metrics. Why? Can't give up the control. Better to attack Tucker Carlson for asking. That was a question that he brought up in the context of a 15 minute monologue where it's clear he's not anti vaccines and he's not saying they don't work. He's just trying to work through a problem that we're not allowed to really talk about because the lockdowners are authoritarians. And I'm actually in the process of trying to find an employee or two to, to join some of my Freedom Hut activities. And it's, it's a 
tough out there right now because you got people that don't necessarily know if they're going to be able to stay remote in their job. I mean, they like it, maybe they don't. There's all this change that's currently going on. And I think we're just beginning to see how much uh, our work-life balance has has really shifted as a result of of these pandemic policies. But it's it's getting more complicated all the time. And that just reminds me that when you're running a business, HR issues can kill you, right? You've got those wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and HR manager salaries are not cheap, as you know, an average of $70,000 a year. Bambi, which is spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business. You can get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. From onboarding determinations, they customize your policies to fit your business, and they help you manage your employees day-to-day. Just $99 a month. They do all this for you. And there's no hidden fees. You can cancel the service anytime. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time on HR compliance. Let Bambi help. Get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash buck right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash buck. B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash buck. President Joe Biden has announced that he plans to pull U.S. troops out of Afghanistan by September 11th of this year, clearly noting the uh, the symbolism here of that of that day and an end to a war that has raged for 20 years. We have been deployed in Afghanistan. We've had U.S. military in Afghanistan for 20 years. And I remember I was in Afghanistan a decade ago. The situation then was largely the same as the situation now, except there were far more troops in, in the country at that time. But the same things you'd hear uh, about how the Taliban is on the offensive and the central government is corrupt and weak and ineffective and their forces toe to toe without U.S. support won't be able to go uh, won't be able to go up in battle against the Taliban without losing. And I just remember thinking that everyone that I knew who was handling that issue at the at the highest levels, honestly, of the intelligence community in the U.S. government was uh, very negative on the long term. Pro- that was in 2010. Very negative on the prospects of Afghanistan's future and felt like we could stay and just keep holding it together or eventually realize that enough is enough. Well, the same voices, the very hawkish Republican voices that you always hear on this point are out there telling you, oh, we we shouldn't do it. Here he here he is. The guy I've never seen. Lindsey Graham he's never seen a troop deployment or a war that he didn't like, as far as I can tell. I, I don't know what it is with this guy. Always looking to, to you know bomb another country and show what is wrong. So he gets uh, applause from the think tank set on K Street in D.C. Here he is. Play 11. Joe Biden's become an incredibly destabilizing American president. Uh, he took a border that was uh, pretty calm and turned it into chaos. Uh, the Mideast had been transformed on Trump's watch where the Arabs were working with the Israelis and had Iran in a box. He's taken 
Iran and let them out of the box. They're talking about enriching uranium at 60% now, which is a direct threat to the existence of the state of Israel. Uh, the Russians are challenging him in the Ukraine. And now he is withdrawing forces in Afghanistan against sound military advice. To all of you who are listening, you remember where you're at on September 11th, 2001. Our military told President Biden that if you withdraw all of our forces, al-Qaeda and ISIS will come roaring back. Um, Afghanistan would disintegrate into civil war, and we can avoid all of that by having three to 5,000 American forces making sure that ISIS and al-Qaeda never come back to hurt us. He rejected that advice. Afghanistan is going to deteriorate pretty rapidly. Al-Qaeda and ISIS are going to come back. He's paving the way for another 9-11. Now, I, I want to be very clear that I don't care that Joe Biden is a Democrat. And I don't care that this may not be the most popular thing to say on conservative talk radio right now. I think the war in Afghanistan needs to end. I wanted Trump to end it. I wanted Trump to end our military presence. He did not. I want Biden to end our military presence. I'm not going to do this thing. I'm not going to play this game of saying I want other men and women downrange fighting, you know, in Afghanistan when it politically suits me no you know how i felt during the the trump years i wanted i wanted the president to end our military involvement in afghanistan i am going to stand on that same viewpoint now all right the, otherwise what am i just you know and look i know there's so many conservatives out there is in the media that's just all about I mean, just raising donor money and like, you know, MAGA hats when it's popular. And then, you know, oh, they're all of a sudden, you know, they're Hayekian free market pioneers when they think that's popular. And then back to the MAGA hat. They say whatever they've got to say. You all know that I want the war in Afghanistan uh, or involvement, I should say, to end there. So I'm not going to pretend that that's not what I wanted. If I wanted it under Trump last year, I want it under Biden now. So I'm not going to do this thing and hit him for. Yeah. Is the border a mess because of Biden? 100 percent. Everything else that I've said about that stuff is that that all stays. But I do think the war in Afghanistan our our part in the war in Afghanistan needs to end. And I understand that that is there's a very real possibility the Taliban will end up taking over substantial control there. And I will tell you right now that I will if there is a terrorist attack planned from Afghan soil that involves the Afghan regime, the Taliban, whatever part it may be, uh, I, I will advocate for a a not a U.S. military, you know, pinprick invasion, uh, but scorched earth and whatever we got to do, however we got to do it. Not not letting them take another generation of Americans, you know, 20 years worth of people who are serving the in the military and wound them and kill them. And we're trying to. <clears throat> create democracy no 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 if they if they if they poke the dragon again we go back breathing whatever fire we have to that should be our attitude it's the way it used to be so that's the old approach in america when we when someone decides that they're going to attack us we go back we hit them with everything we've got until they can't hit us anymore and that's that so that really should be the attitude i think uh it's not that we're going to go rebuild other people's countries for them and that has been the case for for a while now. Now, I understand people would say it's a relatively small military presence. Yeah, but maybe in three years, it won't be relatively small. Maybe the Taliban becomes ascendant and our 3000 troops. There's not enough. 
And now, now we're going to get deeper and deeper into it. You know, there is the, the quagmire theory of how these things work. It's, it's, not, it's not a lie. This can happen. Marco Rubio, another, we've got all these Republican foreign policy hawks, you know, making sure that the Raytheon stock stays where it is uh, and keeps going up. Here's Marco Rubio, play 12. Well, that was a decision that began under President Trump. And um, so they've just what they've announced is that they're going to stick with President Trump's decision uh, with regards to Afghanistan. Look, the outcome is going to be a terrible thing. The Taliban, I believe, will eventually take over the country as they were in charge before. And it's not going to be a good outcome. The flip side of it is that I'm not sure what the pathway to a better future in the near term was. And, um, you know, given all the other needs we're facing around the world, you know, once President Trump made that decision. I think the die was cast in that regard. Do you think the U.S. has made enough progress on training the Afghan security forces? I mean, I hope so. I don't have a tremendous amount of... Uh, I hope I'm wrong because of the implications, but I don't have a lot of faith that the current government in Afghanistan will be able to survive or hold on for long. Uh, the, the, the Taliban... Uh, my, my personal opinion, everything I, mean, I know is that I think the Taliban will have an Afghan, Afghanistan controlled by the Taliban um, again. And that's not a good outcome, but it's the direction that we're headed. And the previous administration agreed to that. The current administration stuck with it. And that's where we're going. I think that's where we should go. And I'll have to revisit this, you know, maybe in a, a year, maybe in 18 months. Because I think what Marco Rubio says here, he, he understands the basic facts and storyline of this. The guy's in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. I mean, he, he's he's pretty uh, he's pretty knowledgeable about this stuff. Uh, yeah, the Taliban will be ascendant and there is a chance the Taliban will take over much, not all, but much of the country. And perhaps they will then forge some kind of a power sharing agreement. But it's not my problem. You know, we, we've we've gone through this, right? We remember Iraq. We tried to build a better country and then they want, you know, now they want us out and. And uh, then we had ISIS and all this stuff, and we're all told, oh, we're imperialists in America. No, we, we've done this. We tried to go in and get rid of the bad dictators and uh, get rid of the jihadists and build nice societies. Nope. Enough. I'm not, I don't want anyone being sent on our behalf as the American people to go do this anymore. You know, what we really need to be concerned about is if things get really hot with China in the next five to ten years, are we ready for that? All right, Afghanistan is done. Well, we, we've been through this. We've done everything that we can do. We'll, we'll still give them aid. And, you know, the thing is, you got to remember, there's also going to be support, back channel support and stuff that, you know, you can't talk about uh, publicly that's going to be going on where the U.S. government's going to be helping the Afghan government. That's obviously going to happen, but it's just no longer going to be our military presence holding this whole place together. And people say, well, what about South Korea and what about Germany? Uh, the Taliban isn't about to take over Germany. I mean, there's not an imminent threat of war in these countries. So those are strategic military bases with host partner nations that actually want us, for the most part, in country. And our troops are not at, at any risk in Germany or in, or in South Korea or in, or in uh, Japan. So that's a very different circumstance, isn't it? If the Nazis were still running around Germany controlling, you know, the whole states, you know, the Nazis were running Bavaria uh, as the Taliban is running parts of Afghanistan, then you'd have a more similar circumstance. But it's time to go. And, uh, you know, like I said, I know a lot of people change their stuff. I know there you know, there are people who as radio hosts were calling Trump an idiot and he's awful. And then there were the big Trump cheerleaders, even they were pretending they weren't. 
Uh, I thought we should have ended Afghanistan under Trump. And this is the timeline that the Trump administration then set out. Biden's going to stay with it. I believe this is the right move. And I think it will get ugly. I think there will be cost to this, but it's not. I, I couldn't sit here and say, if, if you made me secretary of defense, I could not sit here and say to you, the American people, including all the people listening to this who are active and former military. We've got people in the spe- uh, special operations community who listen to the show. We have SEALs. We have SF. We have Marines who listen to this show. I could not say to them, yeah, I want you to I want you to stay in Afghanistan. I think this mission is worth it. And I certainly couldn't say to any of their parents, I want to put your your uh, children in harm's way for this mission set. And so if that's how I feel, would I send my own son, if I had one, uh, to secure Helmand province at this point? If I were the secretary of defense? No, I would not. So come what may, that's how I feel about this. And I'm not I'm not going to trash this policy because the Biden administration is following through on it. Our troops our national security is more important than those kinds of games. There is a process that the federal government can engage in right now. They can collect some of the data which was started in the Obama administration, flowed in the Trump administration, use of force. They can make an assessment of use of force. Departments that appear to have too much use of force, you strengthen consent decrees. You come in, you say these people who have engaged in this behavior, you will lose all of your federal funding if these people are not fired. This is a breakdown as to what this police department does on a regular basis. You're only dealing with violent crime 15% of the time, so you only need to have 15% of your force officers prepared for that. The rest of this is traffic stuff. Increase the number of cops who handle traffic. They don't necessarily have to have guns. Increase the amount of social workers that you have so that you don't have cops negotiating domestic violence instances. There are plans out there. There are things the federal government can do. This is a lack of will on the part of an administration, not a lack of ideas and not a lack of resources. Uh, That's all very dumb. The stuff that's being said there, this is Jason Johnson on MSNBC, that the things that he's saying come from somebody who does not know what the heck he's talking about, does not understand law enforcement, does not know the job, but he's a journalist and he's saying the things that you're supposed to say now if you're uh, going to go on TV on MSNBC. Uh, for example, I mean, this, this is just ignorance now. This is actually just parading of ignorance on TV. Oh, we'll just send unarmed cops to to domestic uh, domestic violence or domestic disturbance calls. Does he know that one, that's one of the most common calls that police get, but also domestic violence calls often result in violence against police officers. Now, when I say often as a percentage of overall incidents of uh, of attacks on on law enforcement, it's not hard to see how this happens. Husband and wife are fighting. It's a terrible thing it happens all over the country, as you know, and, you know, it's a terrible thing when it gets violent. I'm not talking about arguing over who does the dishes. You know, some kind of spousal abuse has occurred. Tempers are flaring. Emotions are running very high. And, you know, police are on the scene. All of a sudden, the police might have to make an arrest. And and maybe that husband decides that he's going to go for his legal or illegal firearm and, you know, just prove some kind of crazy point. Right. I mean, you don't know. This stuff happens. I mean, can you imagine who's going to want this job? You're going to be an unarmed cop who's going into someone's home where there's a, a report of some kind of a domestic dispute. And you're going to hope that no one you know, reaches for a meat cleaver when your back is turned. Do you, do you want that job? It's it's remarkable, isn't it? It's remarkable. This is the stuff that's being said. Oh, traffic stops. We just had a cop executed 
during a traffic stop. He had no idea the guy was going to come out of the car uh, with, with a rifle and shoot him. And then in the shot, the cop multiple times in the ground to him really to execute him, make sure he's dead. It was horrible. The cop was a routine traffic stop, broad daylight, side of the highway. But let's let's take the guns out of the cops hands then, because I mean, we're talking about what here with the with the mix up of the taser and the firearm. This has happened about 15 times uh, in in the last 20 years. I mean, whatever what since whenever tasers really became in such common usage, I think it's about 10 or 15 years ago. But so let's say the last decade or so, it's been 15 times this has happened. Millions and millions and millions of police use of force incidents where they had to wrestle somebody to the ground, they had to do something. This is a tragedy, but it's also at some level a freak accident. It just, it was uh, somebody who panicked in the moment, a law enforcement officer panicked and made a terrible error. And now she's facing second degree manslaughter charges for it. I mean, she's charged. I knew she was going to be. I mean, this was what everyone's expecting. And, and I'm, I've seen now she is charged with secondary manslaughter. And I think that they're probably going to get her to she might even end up taking a plea because she faces up to 10 years. So she'll my guess is she might plead to a lesser offense and, and then she'll end up maybe spending uh, two or three years in prison. But her life is ruined. I mean, her life is is ruined, destroyed. And I'm not trying to just focus on that because I know also a life was lost here from Dante Wright. He's dead, right? He doesn't get he doesn't get another day ever of freedom or life. I understand that's terrible, terrible tragedy, right? It's one thing to resist arrest and be tasered. It's another thing to be shot and killed. We know these are very different circumstances, very different outcomes. Um, And it's the whole thing is sad, but we need to speak honestly about what's going on here and what would make the situation better? I mean, consent decrees for police departments. Every cop you talk to would say, this is just, you know, if one police officer shoots himself in the knee because he mishandles his firearm, that doesn't mean we disarm all the cops. Right? If one police officer, you know, fumbled his gun and shot an innocent bystander, which is not all, you know, it's, it's a little bit different than this case because it was resisting arrest. But you know what I mean? That doesn't mean you're going to disarm all the cops. There's, you know, cops are imperfect. They make mistakes, too. We got 700,000 law enforcement officers in the country. We got about a little over a dozen that have actually mistaken their taser for a firearm over the course of years and years and years. This is not a systemic problem. This is not a problem that can be easily addressed because it is so infrequent and random that. There's no training that's going to deal with this, but so what do they do? All the other stuff that the anti-cop left wants to talk about now, they just start talking about that as though it would help this problem when we all know it will do nothing. Got to talk to you in a second here about wokeness in the schools. There's just so much of it these days. They are not just brainwashing kids. I think this is really important. They're brainwashing adults. They're brainwashing the, the parents and the people who work at these institutions and that's that's something that I'll return to here but it's remarkable when you really get a view into these places when you really understand what's going on at, at elite schools at very expensive private schools as well as in public schools it's just utter madness but you know on the technology front there's all this convenient stuff that's going on right now and public wi-fi is one of them right you go to places now more and more stores restaurants just open spaces even will have publicly accessible Wi-Fi. 
But if you're using either your phone or your laptop to connect to them, what you're doing could be seen by somebody else. If they've got the right technology, if they have the right kind of setup, and bad guys will actually do this to try to trick you to get access to your data. And that kind of makes the whole personal computer thing feel not so personal, right? Your data may be subject to this kind of breach. That's why I think you need to get ExpressVPN. A VPN is a virtual private network. What that means is that it adds protection to your digital world. It encrypts your information so people can't access it and steal it. And it also covers up your IP address so when you're surfing the web, when you're doing these things, especially on a public Wi-Fi, for example, people can't know who you are and then get access to all of your data. It costs less than $6 a month and it puts a layer of privacy and protection on all of your devices. ExpressVPN is the best name in this business. This is the one that I have. It's what you should go with, too. Download the service today for less than $6 a month and give yourself privacy on five of your devices, your PC, your phone, your tablet, whatever devices you're using the most. The website to set yourself up is expressvpn.com buck. That's expressvpn.com buck to get three months of service with an annual plan extra okay one year plan three months free just go to expressvpn.com slash buck excellent piece on woke schools written by a fellow named paul rossi and it is put on the barry weiss Substack. Uh, and it's i refuse to stand by while my students are indoctrinated now just some backstory here um, the school in question that we're about to talk about is a a rival school to the grammar school that I went to. I went to a private Catholic school in New York City, and this is also a private Catholic school in New York City, one that is, I used to play them in sports, I had friends from this school, so I, I know this place a bit. I haven't really spent much time in the actual school, but I I know this school a bit. And uh, that this has happened now, I can just tell you, this isn't a one-off what, what I'm about to talk to you about here, written by this, this math teacher at the Grace Church School in New York City, Paul Rossi, this has occurred in, uh, in private schools across New York City, across the country. Elite schools now, because the people that, you know, that, that think of themselves as elite educators, and many of the very wealthy parents are already on board for this stuff, but they, they have become ultra-woke so while they're running these institutions, it's a fascinating situation. They're running these institutions that are uh, are often costing, let's say, forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year. Grammar school, folks. I know this is some parts of the country. You're like, what? Sixty thousand dollars a year for the first grade? Yes, that exists in New York, in Los Angeles, maybe a handful of other places, maybe San Francisco. D.C.'s got some, you know, Sidwell friends where the uh, Obama children went. I mean, there are some schools that are forty, fifty thousand dollars there uh, a year for grammar school. So you're, you're basically paying what you used to think you'd pay to go to Harvard. I mean, now those places are closer to seventy grand when you add in uh, basic living expenses. Anyway, I want to read to you from this piece because this takes you through the real mentality of the woke left in a way that you need to be familiar with. Uh, they're so there's so much cognitive dissonance at work here. There's so much um, absurdity. You know, they will tell you you're allowed to have your opinion. You know, the administrator at a school like this, and then comma in the next breath say, 
But your opinion is basically violence and there may be professional consequences against you for it. This is really I mean, this would be like saying if we're having a First Amendment, a real, you know, old school First Amendment debate about the government, it would be like if the government showed up and said, we're shutting down your, you know, oh, you're allowed to have your opinions about this, you know, political issue. Uh, You're totally allowed. But we're now going to seize and shut down your printing press and and close your newspaper. But but you're allowed to have your opinion. We're just going to shut it down and punish you and make sure you can't have your opinion. I know that's crazy, but that's where this is now. That's actually the circumstance in which we find ourselves with this. So let me read you from some excellent piece. Look, Barry Weiss, who was supposed to get some conservative voices, not even balanced, just voices, the New York Times editorial page. She left because the idiot woke, you know, 22 to 40 year olds at the New York Times who work in the newsroom, who work as, you know, assistant assignment editors or blah, blah, whatever the different journo jobs are these days. Uh, they are insane. I mean, they're not normal. They, they don't view the world the way a normal person does. They really think they're in some some. Uh, you know, jihad against conservatism and free speech as a moral obligation insofar as they actually believe in any kind of morality. Here's what the piece, here's the piece goes. I refuse to stand by while my students are indoctrinated. Children are afraid to challenge the repressive ideology that rules our schools. That's why I am. Here's what he writes. I'm a teacher at Grace Church High School in Manhattan. Ten years ago, I changed careers when I discovered how rewarding it is to help young people explore the truth and beauty of mathematics. I love my work. As a teacher, my first obligation is to my students. But right now, my school is asking me to embrace anti-racism training and pedagogy that I believe is deeply harmful to them and to any person who seeks to nurture the virtues of curiosity empathy and understanding anti-racist training sounds righteous but it is the opposite of truth in advertising it requires teachers like myself to treat students differently on the basis of race furthermore in order to maintain a united front for our students teachers at grace are directed to confine our doubts about this pedagog pedagog uh, pedagog about this framework a pedagogical framework, that's the word I was looking for, to conversations with an in-house office of community engagement for whom every significant objection leads to a foregone conclusion. Any doubting students are likewise challenged to reframe their views to conform to orthodoxy. It really is very Maoist. It is, it is very um, Soviet in its approach. This is they're they're telling you that they want to have an open dialogue, but then they tell you that what you're supposed to think as part of that dialogue and supposedly open dialogue. And then when you say, well, I don't agree with that, they say, right, we're going to challenge you to think about why you do agree with it. There is no room for disagreement. They see this is the point. This is the point. This is why they take this approach. Your fighting back or your disagreement with what they claim is evidence of further guilt of what you've done. You see what I'm saying? This is it's very similar to, you know, witch trials. We always think of Salem witch trials in this country. People don't realize that around the time of the 30 years war, 
there were witch trial crazes throughout Europe, and thousands and thousands of women were burned at the stake, drowned. And, and one of the ways they would always approach in this trial was that the objection to being called a witch was proof of being a witch. And this is just like the framework set up in this country for racism and white supremacy. Objections to being called or to something being described as racism or white supremacy is a priori, not based on actual observation or, or based on fact, but just based on, on assumed wisdom, on assumed truth. You must, in fact, be a racist or a white supremacist because you don't agree that you're a racist or a white supremacist. This is very dangerous, but very prevalent thinking. Here's what uh, this, this guy, Rossi, Paul Rossi, at the Grace Church School in New York continues with. My school, this is the quote, my school, like so many others, induces students via shame and sophistry to identify primarily with their race before their individual identities are fully formed. Students are pressured to conform their opinions to those broadly associated with their race and gender and to minimize or dismiss individual experiences that don't match those assumptions. The morally compromised status of oppressor is assigned to one group of students based on their immutable characteristics. In the meantime, dependency, resentment, and moral superiority are cultivated in students considered oppressed. End quote. Resentment and moral superiority cultivated in the oppressed groups. This is the kind of stuff that you're not allowed to really say out loud, are you? But he's writing it. He's saying it. Have you ever observed that? In some of your own experiences with the wokeness, with anti-racism training, with corporate diversity seminars? He writes that resentment and moral superiority are cultivated in the oppressed. And when you hear things like this and you and you you have they have that that ring of immediate truth, you say to yourself, isn't it an, isn't it an astonishing thing when the truth can be said aloud or can be written, as is the case? All of this, he writes, quote, is done in the name of equity, but it is the opposite of fair. In reality, all of this reinforces the worst impulses we have as human beings our tendency toward tribalism and sectarianism that a truly liberal education is meant to transcend. Recently, this is amazing, I raised questions about this ideology at a mandatory whites-only student and faculty Zoom meeting. Such racially segregated sessions are now commonplace at my school. It was a bait-and-switch self-care seminar that labeled objectivity, individualism, fear of open conflict, and even a right to comfort as characteristics of white supremacy. I doubted that these human attributes, many of them virtues reframed as vices, should be racialized in this way. In the Zoom chat, I also questioned whether one must define oneself in terms of a racial identity at all. My goal was to model for students that they should feel safe to question ideological assertions if they felt moved to do so. It seemed like my questions broke the ice. Students and even a few teachers offered a broad range of questions and observations. Many students said it was a more productive and substantive discussion than they expected. 
However, when my questions were shared outside this forum, violating the school norm of confidentiality, I was informed by the head of the high school that my philosophical challenges had caused harm to students, given that these topics were life and death matters about people's flesh and blood and bone. I was reprimanded for acting like an independent agent of a set of principles or ideas or beliefs, and I was told that by doing so, I failed to serve the greater good and the higher truth. He further informed me that I had created dissonance for vulnerable and unformed thinkers and neurological disturbance in students' beings and systems. The school's director of studies added that my remark could even be const- could even constitute harassment. End quote. Ah, yes, the weird pseudoscientific, almost Marxist twanged. This is about harm to flesh and blood because of these students, you know, racial uh, racial differences. And you can't talk about this. And by the way, if you do talk about this, if if you don't embrace this sectarian struggle that they're they're putting forward, uh, it's also harassment. Once somebody who's in a position of authority of you at a job starts using the phrase constitutes harassment, that's the. We might fire your ass uh, warning, right? That's what that is. Once you start using phrases like hostile workplace or harassment, that's gearing up to take action against you. And that's that's not a that's not something that just you can you can take as as idle chatter. That's something that could be acted upon and, and could have severe consequences for somebody. And it clearly is meant to send a message to this fellow. I'm going to come back with more here of this. It's on Barry Weiss's Substack. So barryweiss.substack.com. Paul Rossi, math teacher here in New York. And the truth about wokeness. It gets even crazier, folks. So we're talking about this uh, this piece from a New York City high school, a New York City, well, grammar school uh, math teacher at an elite school that costs about $60,000 a year. Elite really just meaning it's very, very expensive. So it's for, it's a school for rich people, really, or, or close to rich people. Although I know these schools and they usually will take in what they call in New York City prep for prep. That was the name of the program. And it's underprivileged minority students or, you know, low income minority students who go to these schools for free. There's usually a small number of them in each class. And so that's how these schools cover themselves. Like, oh, we've got diversity. You know, we've got 40 students and it is usually small, 40, 50 students a class. But we've got, you know, three or four minority students who are going for free. And and then they do all this talk about wokeness and diversity. But so we've already had this guy get in trouble. Right. This is a math teacher in New York. He got in trouble for at a whites only Zoom session mandated by the school because they separate people out by race in the faculty to have discussions, which is crazy. But they do this now. Um, he raised that he didn't like some of the teaching that was going on, the indoctrination. And he was told that it might be harassment. The head of the school, his boss, says all this stuff. It gets worse. Back into this piece. Quote, the head of the school ordered all high school advisors to read a public reprimand of my conduct out loud to every student in the school. It was a surreal experience walking the halls alone and hearing the words emitting from each classroom. 
Events from last week compel us to underscore some aspects of our mission and share some thoughts about our community, the statement began. At independent schools, with their history of predominantly white populations, racism colludes with other forms of bias, sexism, classism, ableism, and so much more, to undermine our stated ideals, and we must work hard to undo this history. Then he writes, Students from low-income families experience culture shock at our school. Racist incidents happen, and bias can influence relationships. All true. But addressing such problems with a call to undo history lacks any kind of limiting principle and pairs any allegation of bigotry with a priori guilt. My own contract for next year requires me to participate in restorative practices designed by the Office of Community Engagement in order to heal my relationship with students of color and other students in my classes. The details of these practices remain unspecified until I agree to sign. I asked my uncomfortable questions in the self-care meeting because I felt the duty to my students. I wanted to be a voice for the many students of different backgrounds who have approached me over the course of the past several years to express their frustration with indoctrination at our school but are afraid to speak up. They report that in their classes and other discussions, they must never challenge any of the premises of anti-racist teachings, which are deeply informed by critical race theory. These concerns are confirmed for me when I attend grade level and all school meetings about race or gender issues. It's just madness. That's the end of the quote there. It's just madness. You know, he goes on. I don't have time to get into everything in this piece. Like I said, uh, I'll, I'll share it on on Facebook and on Twitter so you can find it at Buck Sexton and we'll, we'll, we'll do a write up. of it. We'll put something up on BuckSexton.com. Um, but everything in this this piece that they write about here, you've heard of similar things in other places. This is becoming mainstream. The indoctrination is utter madness and it needs to stop. People need to understand that this is completely unacceptable and they are taking a what it really is a a Stalinist approach to this. This is the accepted way to think about things. And if you disagree, we will punish you until you agree that any concerns you have would just be more evidence of what, you know, white supremacy really is. That's what they're saying. Crazy. Jack Posobiec, formerly a naval intelligence officer and now with one America News joins. He is following the Derek Chauvin trial in Minneapolis and all the situations unfolding in the Minneapolis area right now with the riots and the looting and then the craziness that's happening. Uh, Jack, great to have you back on the show. Hey, Buck, it's great to be here. Boy, we did. We were talking last time. I think I was on about what would happen in the aftermath of the trial. And yet the trial's still going, but the riots have already begun. It's it's really a, a, a tinderbox, Jack. We all know that it was a tense situation. Preparations in downtown Minneapolis at the courthouse and, and just anything they thought would be a high priority target for these riots. It, it looks like a war zone already. And then you add to it this this shooting of Dante Wright, the riots that have been happening there. Let's drill down because because my my understanding is that uh, that that there have been some pretty big bombshells in just the last uh, 24 to 48 hours in the Chauvin trial, which, as we know, is going to have an enormous effect on what happens in Minneapolis over the next week or so. Yeah, Buck, that's absolutely right. So what happened so far is that this week, early Monday, the prosecution rested their case in chief 
And so what, then what happens is the defense begins to put up their side in chief. So the defense in chief, up until that point, we'd only really heard from one side of the case, that being the prosecution side, the state side, which is being sort of quarterbacked by Keith Ellison. Now it's the defense's turn. They're coming forward with their witnesses, their medical experts, uh, their use of force experts, which we heard yesterday, we're hearing today. And interestingly enough, very interesting, uh, I think, for a lot of people to note, is that in that car, go all the way back to May 25th of 2020, the day in, in question, there were three people in that car. It was George Floyd, Maurice Hall, and Shawanda Hill. The prosecution did not call the two passengers in the car up to testify. It was, in fact, the defense that brought forward the two passengers who were with Floyd during that day and during the time when the police first arrived. That's not usually the type of thing you would see in a case like this. Now, what do you take from that, Jack? Well, so it's very interesting because Maurice Hall, of course, um, had already been fingered by George Floyd's um, girlfriend as being the man who had sold him drugs in the past. She said he was a drug dealer, someone she had given him an ultimatum about even spending time with. She didn't like this guy, didn't want George to be around him, right? He comes up and takes the fifth. He says he will not testify because under Minnesota law, and his, his lawyer also brought this up as well, that if he sold him drugs, so sold Floyd drugs that contributed to Floyd's death, the fentanyl uh, mixed with uh, methamphetamine, which he was telling people were Percocets, these are street, street counterfeit drugs. Um, under that scenario, under Minnesota law, that's considered third degree murder. So that actually could, he could be held liable for the murder of George Floyd. Uh, and of course, he has a Fifth Amendment right to not incriminate himself. He, he took the stand today, took the fifth, and the judge said that he would allow that. He would not compel the testimony. And so he did not testify. Then Shawanda Hill yesterday testified and gave some very interesting testimonies to the jury that I don't think has been heard yet. And she stated that while they were in the car, so Buck, you remember this whole thing started with a counterfeit $20 bill, right? Mm -hmm. And when George Floyd left that store, the Cup Foods convenience store, workers then came out and said that they were asking him, hey, can you just give us the $20 so we can square this up? Give us a real 20, right? And they never really explained why it was that until they called police that George Floyd simply didn't just drive away, right? You know, leave, leave the scene, you know, not, not stay there. Shawanda Hill answered that question for us yesterday when she got up and testified very strangely that George Floyd suddenly fell asleep, almost passed out seemingly in the driver's seat of that vehicle while it was sitting outside the convenience store. Uh, she said that she took a phone call and then she turned over and George was asleep and said that she couldn't rouse him, the workers of the store couldn't rouse him, and it was only later when police finally arrived that he was able to get up. Now, also due to issues of self-incrimination under the Fifth Amendment, the judge didn't allow questioning of whether or not she had viewed George Floyd using drugs, whether she had supplied him with drugs, etc. However, that's something that really speaks to the defense's connotation, their argument, that Floyd was, as we know, of course, in the toxicology report, was using fentanyl and that may have ingested a large amount of fentanyl mixed with methamphetamine combined with his already uh, heightened medical condition, which, of course, we've heard from every medical examiner has said that this this guy definitely had uh, medical what you would consider 
uh, cardiac disease, 90% um, occlusion on one side, 75% the other side of his heart. This guy was a guy who did not have a healthy heart. And for him to take that amount of fentanyl, plus we know later when police arrived, he, he then chewed some other fentanyl pills to try to uh, uh, potentially try to, to, um, to hide them. They were later found much later in the police squad car. But all of these things may have contributed to this. And so it kind of answered that key question of why he stayed there and why he didn't simply leave. Uh, he was not conscious for that entire period, which is new information to the jury. Okay, so we're talking to Jack Posobiec of One America News. And Jack, the use of force issue has been central here. I want you to tell me what the most recent expert for the defense says about the putting the knee on the neck and, and what's where are we on that? Yes, this expert from the defense who came up, he positively testified that using a prone position is something that's absolutely considered a standard for police practice, especially when a suspect is resisting arrest and using what he referred to as aggressive resistance by Floyd. Again, if folks remember from the full video that came out, uh, not just the nine minutes, but the full video, Floyd was uh, was resisting multiple officers who were trying, who were asking him to sit in the back of a police car. He refused to do that. He fought them off. Then when they laid him on the ground, or he actually requested to be laid on the ground, uh, he, he kicked several times at the officers. And so uh, police are trained, and this is what the expert testified, they are trained that when they are dealing with that type of active, aggressive resistance, that holding someone in a prone position is not only supported from an objective standard, but also recommended not just for the safety of the officers, but for the safety of the uh, the suspect, because they may be experiencing um, intoxication by, by drugs or other means, and that they may become a harm to themselves. This is actually something that's trained to police officers and certainly would have been consistent with the training that Chauvin received. How, how could we be in this place where we're told by some law enforcement experts who are appearing that this would never be a restraint that would be allowed to be used. But others are saying, no, this is actually right from the training manual. Right. And so you, you've really got a situation where because the way these policies are written, they've been rewritten so many times after uh, various use of force cases throughout the country, that it's something where it can become uh, there's a lot of holes in this. It's very complicated. There's a ton of bureaucracy. Buck, you, I know you dealt with this when you're in the intel community. I dealt with this certainly in the military and in the IC where you can any good JAG can find a piece of policy that they can point to and says that you broke it because the policy is that large. What it really does come down to is the training and it comes down to what are the accepted practices of the officers. Now, Jack, what can you tell us about the expected timeline here? And, and where this is all heading, I mean, uh, from what I've read, we, we could have the jury going into deliberations as soon as next week. Is that still where things stand? That's correct. Um, barring any uh, significant delays this week, um, which, quite frankly, the, the defense has been rather quick. He actually went through six witnesses uh, yesterday, whereas the, you know, the prosecution would take one witness, seemingly one witness per day almost, or just a couple witnesses per day. Um, they're currently scheduled. The judge thinks that starting Monday, the jury will go into deliberations. Um, he actually pointed out at one point they should probably pack a bag because they will. Now, this is something that's interesting. They will be sequestered throughout their deliberations. So that means um, when they're deliberating, they're in court. When they're not, they're going to be sequestered uh, probably in a hotel somewhere, somewhere where they're kept away from media. They're kept away from uh, from others, they're not going to be given, um, you know, have the ability to text, you know, their friends and family, that type of thing, 
full sequestration. And so then we might now that being said, I've talked to numerous attorneys about this. They said, you know what? You can really only guess a jury maybe 10, 20% of the time. Uh, so juries come back with verdicts that that nobody could see coming in many cases. So this and the same goes for the length of deliberations. This could be something where it's over very quickly. Uh, could be something where it's over very uh, over a very lengthy period. Could be a couple of days. Um, I have heard through sort of through the grapevine that um, some prosecutors and some lawyers in the Minneapolis area have reached out to the Minnesota National Guard in order to make them know that there is a probability that there could be a hung jury. Now, a hung jury means they that the jury simply votes and votes and votes. And as of course, uh, we need you need 12 to either acquit or find guilty. Um, if they cannot get to those 12 votes, then it could come to a situation where there is a hung jury, there is a significant disagreement, a bypass that they are not able, or excuse me, a, a blockade that they are not allowed to bypass, in which case that would go back to the judge and say, look, we have not been able to decide this. And it is a very close case. It is a very close question on a number of these issues. Uh, did the, pr the prone factor contribute to his death? If so, how much? And was it enough to, to include uh, uh, one of these charges, either murder or manslaughter? That's really what this jury is going to have to question. Jack, and, and before we let you go, it's Jack Prasobic of One America News. We're speaking to here about the Derek Chauvin trial. Do, do we have any sense? I know that self-described Antifa, or just Antifa, the media says self-described. Antifa has already shown up in the area. Uh, we have all this 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 sense of a, of a combustible environment because of what's already happened with Dante Wright. And it's 10 miles away. That shooting was 10 miles away from his courthouse, so it's right nearby. And if... Is there such a thing that there will be a verdict that will stop riots or is the expectation that there will be likely be riots at the verdict no matter what? Well, you know, I don't think so. Uh, having studied Antifa, I'm actually putting out a book on Antifa very soon. Um, they will use either either scenario to justify more riots. It's, it's quite simple. Think of it. Um, if he is found not guilty, they will say the system is corrupt and so you must riot. If he's found guilty, they'll say the police are murderers, so you must riot. So they've put themselves in a position where either outcome is is uh, will support their, their ends because they have a predetermined plan to riot, to support actual sedition, actual insurrection in the United States. And they view the entire United States system as a form of social fascism. They would say that uh, that the church is fascism. They would say that banks are fascism. That law itself is fascism. And so this goes back to Stalin. And so this, in in this uh, encompassing, uh, you could say ideology. We could also say pathology. They will use anything, any excuse to justify their means. Jack Prasobic, One America News. Jack, always great to have you, man. Thanks so much. Appreciate it, Buck. Thanks so much, man. And, uh, and now they've got this uh, humanitarian crisis, national security crisis down there, which is desperately in need of a solution. One of the things they could do, there's been a lot of talk about infrastructure. The administration is talking about infrastructure, Bill. One important piece of infrastructure is to, to finish building the border wall. And that would be really important, and it's already been funded. Congress has appropriated money for that. The administration has chose not to take those dollars and to finish building out the wall. We heard from Border Patrol how important the wall is. Finish the wall, Senator John Thune says. Now, let me tell you, I'm, I'm pro-wall because I have actually spoken to Border, Contro Border Patrol. I've seen the wall. I understand how this would help. It is not a panacea, not even close. And with what we see going on right now, 
I got to tell you, the wall would help, but it wouldn't help with the primary problem. The wall would help with the secondary problem at our border. Let me explain. The, uh, the, we'll start with the secondary. The secondary issue is that because you have Border Patrol so overwhelmed with people coming to the border, they are stretched thin and therefore cartels and just people who aren't even going to try to go through the asylum system at all but just want to take a run, in, run into the U.S. approach. But particularly for the drug cartels, that's the best thing, right? Because they're not showing up and turning themselves in. They want to get their illegal contraband in the country. So for the cartels, the the wall is helpful. I mean, the, it's helpful to deal with uh, the cartels to have a wall because then you can greater concentrate your border patrol forces that you do have um, in areas where there's high traffic crossings, and you can you can actually cut down on some of that. Not going to stop it, but you can cut down on some of that. But the primary issue here is not people. Everyone has to understand this. And I think that this is getting lost in some of the coverage of of what's the Biden administration crisis at our border, which is a tremendous crisis. The, The problem is that people aren't trying to sneak into the U.S. who are the unaccompanied minors and the family units and others who are showing up. They are very much flagging down. They they walk to the border. The actual physical border that separates the United States from Mexico, which in some places there is no border, it's just land. And you just walk and you've crossed over into territory. They walk and they say, hey, I'm here. Take me. I want to claim asylum. A wall does nothing to stop that. Right. Because the best thing that a wall does for you is slow down people who are trying to have no contact with law enforcement and are just hoping to run into the U. I mean, literally run into the United States. So a wall, you see them, you say, "Uh oh, they're trying to cross illegally and you stop them, you grab them. And then you can put them in process and then and then deport them if they're you know for, for the illegal crossing. A wall with the policies the Biden administration is using doesn't do that much because people just show up. Let's say let's say that I, I was at an area of wall uh, of, of the border where there is a wall and I show up and I say uh, and I'm there and I'm part of a family and I show up with my wife and my child. Well, we can get over that wall or find a place where the wall ends because the wall is not contiguous anywhere. We just go to the edge of the wall and yeah, the cameras and the, and the sensors We'll let Border Patrol know and they'll be waiting there for me. And you know what my approach would be if I was one? I'd say, great. Hey, Border Patrol, I want to claim asylum. Let's start that whole process. And they take me in, they feed me and they start fingerprinting and doing all these things. You see, the wall does not stop this. And I think everyone needs to understand that the wall does not end this. So while I'm pro wall, don't get me wrong. The wall should be finished. The wall is a good thing. It's not enough. It's about political will. It's about rule of law. It's about enforcing what's already on the books. And the Biden administration will not do that. And as long as that is the case, this doesn't change. The show ain't over yet, folks. It's time for Roll Call. Indeed it is. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton or Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com. And all of the good all of the good things going on in the roll call today. I appreciate you all writing in and uh, please do pass the buck. 
the the two things you can do to keep the Freedom Hutter rocking. So don't come a knocking. Uh, the two things you can do are um, you can you can tell somebody about the show. The best, not just tell them, send them a link. You can send them a link to BuckSexton.com. Just send them, just send them, you know, the actual link on their phone, BuckSexton.com. Check out this guy's podcast. Or uh, you can take a Spotify or iHeartRadio uh, I or Apple Podcasts link of the Buck Sexton Show and text that or email that to somebody. The most helpful thing you can do, please do spread the word. We want more and more people listening. I think this is the best conservative show out there. I'm just going to say it. I do. So uh, no, no qualms about it. So please spread the word. And we grow every month, thanks to you. So we're doing great, but I want us to keep doing great. And and I, I'm not going to rest until, you know, we we are really just at at that. I, I don't even know what the number would be, but we're just at that place where I feel like um, everyone really understands that this is the show they should be listening to. So uh, with that, oh, and speaking of shows to listen to, we released a Malta podcast last night. You'll see it in the feed of your podcast if you're a radio listener. And we love all of our radio love our radio affiliates across the country. But if you're a radio listener, this is your opportunity. Go to BuckSexton.com um, or go, you know, on Spotify, the iHeart app, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, any of those, whichever one you like the most. They're pretty all user friendly and easy. But let's say Apple Podcasts. Go to Apple Podcasts. Go to the Buck Sexton show. And even if you listen to the show, the whole show, and you listen already, that's fine. But the Siege of Malta Part 1 podcast is out. It's only about 40 minutes long. And I what it really is, is I want to do a two-parter because there's been a fair amount of you know, documentary kind of movies and things made about the actual siege, which I'm going get to get to as well. But I want you to understand what led up to it because what leads up to the siege is incredible. And there's this guy who is one of the primary uh, Knights of Malta, Knights of St. John, Knights Hospitaller at the time of the actual siege, but later to be known as the Knights of Malta, there's a guy, Mathurin Romaga. He's French. This guy's a total badass, okay? Total badass and uh, is central to the events leading up to Malta, the siege, and then is at the siege. And then later is one of the top admirals at the Battle of Lepanto, one of the greatest naval battles of all time in 1571, which comes six years after Malta. So Romaga, you'll learn about him in this podcast I think you'll really appreciate the history, the backstory we get into. And again, the more people speaking of this, and I'm very open about this. I'm a capitalist and I'm I'm all about this show. Uh, I want more people listening than even do right now. And we got a lot of people listening, but spread that. It's a history show. It's not no no talk about Biden or Trump or anything. No, history, pure history. Shields High, uh, the Siege of Malta Part One is out. The Siege of Malta Part Two. We're looking to release that next week, probably Wednesday or Thursday next week. And uh, you'll you'll hear that's going to be the actual battle, which I, I mean, I've read I've read multiple books at this point just about the siege itself. And I've, I've just done tons of research into this. And I, I really look forward to uh, telling you about this. One of the most uh, one of the most amazing. I mean, the fact that it hasn't been made into a series or a movie, at least not a not a really well-known one. Um, it's kind of amazing to me because it's such an incredible story. I mean, the most really the most powerful military force in the world invades this island, and it's just an absolute fight to the death for months between a pretty small band of Christian knights, really a vestige of the Crusades, the Knights of Knights Hospitaller, uh, and 
and they man they managed to you know spoiler alert they managed to hold out against this which it were unbelievable odds and changed the course of the Mediterranean changed the course of Christendom and, and of world history in the process because what people don't often know is that the Ottomans were the Ottomans were thinking about how to get all the way to Rome to the Vatican to take the seat of Christianity itself at the time. That was the plan. They'd already taken Constantinople, turned it into Istanbul. The next stop for them was going to be Rome. They were going to have a, an invasion of mainland Italy and take the, the crown jewel of the Roman Catholicism and then from there strike into the heart of Europe itself. And you, you got to think from the Ottoman perspective, they had control of of all of, of Asia Minor, of what we now think of as the Near East, North Africa, tremendous empire. And the, they were stopped by this one band, one of the most amazing. If you like history, you like military history and, and just history in general, you got to check out the Siege of Malta podcast, part one, part of our Shields High series. These, these are just passion projects for me. I just love this stuff. So I do these podcasts um, and, and there you go. So please do share them. And let us know what you think. Let us know if there's another topic, uh, a history topic you want me to do for Shields High. All right. Brad writes, hey, Buck and Mark, love the show. One of my favorite parts has been watching your relationship with each other evolve over the last couple of years. I used to think producer Mark was borderline insubordinate because he would undermine Buck occasionally. Once I learned how young Mark was, I understood better. Anyway, I'm a huge fan. See, you're a salty little fellow, Mr. Mark. I'm a huge fan of all aspects of the show now, especially like the way you two work together as a solid team. I do think you'll be a big part of filling the gaping hole in radio that was left by Rush's death. Buck, I thought of you as an heir apparent long before Rush got sick and even shared that opinion with others. One thing you have that many others don't is genuine, natural humor, which is woven throughout the show. Never seems gimmicky or forced. I take your call to patronize sponsors seriously. I've done the most with Black Rifle Coffee. Not only do I have a membership, but I know of at least three other households that do based on my experience and recommendation. Love you guys. Love the show. And Shield Sigh always. Brad, man, thank you so much for uh, a really supportive and and really appreciated a note here for Roll Call. And yes, indeed, once you understand that producer Mark is a young whippersnapper and that part of this show is, is uh, you know, he, he's grown from being a, a, a whippersnapper to a salty dog. And then you understand what's going on. Not even 30, not even 30 yet. I know he sounds like he's 50 to you guys. I don't even know how to respond to all of this. Insubordinate? Yeah. I mean, what? Yeah, you know. When was I yeah, insubordinate? You know, you're, a little, you're a little salty sometimes. Uh, salty, I will agree with, but I never defied Buck. No, 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 yeah. I know, I know. Hey, look, yeah. you know, people, I'll, I'll tell you this, you know, people are, uh, you know, even when I've had guests on who are friends of mine on, on whether it's this show or on TV in the past, then people joke around with me, you know, I appreciate that that your audience is like your team, and so they're you know they're protective. But you know then, but what what uh, Brad here is saying is that he knows that you're your right hand man on the team, so it's cool. Like you know, it's it's fine. It's just a, little, a little salt is all right. You yeah. guys, you know, Bruce and Mark should earmuff himself now. This guy takes on so much responsibility every day, has to be so reliable and so on it. And the fact that he does all that at I don't know, he's like twenty twenty two or something. The kids, the kids are practically in diapers. So, well, twenty eight. It's not really twenty two. Yeah. Well, when did close I enough. become? When did I go from almost twenty to almost thirty? I don't. Yeah, I yeah, am yeah. almost. Well, we're, 30. we're trying to exaggerate it here a little bit. You know what I mean? It's part of the legend, the legend of producer Mark. So 
That's true. Actually, I'm uh, 15 years old and uh, just about to be a freshman in high school. Yeah, he just sounds like he's 15. He smokes a pack of Marlboro Reds every exactly. day. That's why, he's, and that's why my voice is so deep. It's like, hey, it's producer Mark. Producer Mark all of a sudden now sounds I'm like Fauci. Great. Yeah, that's right. So there we go. Oh, oh and, and but Brad, on, on, a, on a serious note, it, it means so much to, to our sponsors because every single time you act on one of our one of our call to actions for a sponsor, every single one, they see it. So every person out there, everything. Oh, it doesn't matter. You know, do I need to do I need to get a black rifle? Do I need to use Bambi if I own a small business? Do I need to get ExpressVPN or whatever? Every single time you do and you use our promo code. You are sending a message to that sponsor that you support this show and you and you're purchasing their products and you keep our show on the air. It's like I mean, it's it's like voting. I mean, every single vote counts. Don't ever think, oh, well, there's all these other people listening to the Bucks section. No, we, we need every single one of you to uh, to act on it. Every single one of you who can look. I know, you know, people have things they need, don't need time to tight all that. I get it. But if you can, I mean, if you, you know, I mean, the coffee is an obvious one, but there are so many of these sponsors we have. Uh, you know, I talk to you about inflation. I mean, I, I own real gold and silver. I wish I could own a lot more, but I, I've built up some some gold and silver that I have, and, and I get it from the Oxford Gold Group. But that's true. I mean, I am concerned about inflation. I'm taking these actions myself. I bought a house through our sponsor, Done For Your Real Estate. In fact, I've now worked with my brothers to buy more than one house to set up a real estate portfolio to help for my retirement. I've done all that. That's all true. So... You know, I mean, everything I tell you about this stuff is true. But what I'm saying is, you know, these are sponsors that I use, that I that I trust, and that when you use them as well, you're voting to keep the show on the air. And especially these days with all the corporate targeting and stuff that's going on, you know, it really matters that you support our sponsors. So please, I, I ask you to really give some thought to that. And uh, you know, don't if you're listening on podcast, don't fast forward through the uh, the commercials. And and if you're listening to me do a live read on radio, please. Give it some thought. And we appreciate every single one of you who does, by the way. We really do. Chris, hey there, Buck and Mark. I just want to throw it out there that, yes, Ted Lasso was a very good show. The wife and I watched it together. It was hilarious pretty much from beginning to end. And also Brooklyn Nine-Nine is great as well. Toward the later seasons, it gets a little less interesting and hilarious, but still funny. And in all the Leprechaun movies, they were amazingly cheesy and great for what they were. But the main thing we can't forget is that the very first Leprechaun movie introduced us to Jennifer Aniston. Keep fighting the good fight, fellows. Chris, absolutely true. Little known fact, Jennifer Aniston of Friends stardom, her first on-screen role in a movie was Leprechaun 1. Did you know that, Producer Mark? I didn't, and then she went on to star in one of the worst sitcoms ever. I'm just going to pretend you didn't say that. I just, I just, you know... I'm just going to let that sadness sit inside me and act like you don't understand that Friends is a great show. It's objectively bad. I mean, you're not even you're not even taking the like slightly more acceptable position that Seinfeld's a better show than Friends. You're saying Friends is bad. Yeah. Well, Seinfeld blows it out of the water. Like Seinfeld's uh, an example of what a good TV show is. Uh, and Friends is an example of boring writing. See, I can't even cliches. get like the, I can't even get the proper level of outrage going here because I agree with you that Seinfeld is a great show. It's not that. It's just that your denigration of friends. I, I don't even know. I don't even know what to say. I don't even know what to say. Whenever it's on my eyes glass over, I'm like, this is supposed to be funny. Uh, I don't get it. But yeah, it is true that that Jennifer Aniston, you know, wearing a crop top with her hair kind of bobbed and everything back in the day was, you know, she was running around going, oh, 
gosh, oh yeah, I don't know what's going on here, and you know, oh jeez, I don't know, I don't know, you know, sort you gotta of high start talking somewhere. stuff that she does. Yeah, she's like, oh gosh, guys, I don't know what's going on. Oh my gosh, and little, I'm the leprechaun. Oh hey, lassie, I'm the leprechaun. You know, he's running around, and you know, he's a very mean little leprechaun. He bites. He's he's a trickster, and he he kills people. He's a mean little leprechaun. So. Not not all of them are your frosted lucky charms. That's all I'm telling I'm you. I'm surprised so. you haven't made Fauci a leprechaun yet. Like that seems like a slam dunk for you. Yeah. Well, I think I referred to him as the lab coated leprechaun, at least in writing pieces that I've done. So yeah. Oh, we'll have to hear your impression of him another but day. But the problem is he's an eat. I'm the leprechaun. You know, pot of gold. You got to mitigate your pot of gold. Um, you know, the problem with with, uh, with Fauci as leprechaun is that usually people think of them as. As the nice kind, you know, but no, they're actually mischievous and can be evil. Roll call continuing here with Bear. Hello, Buck. Longtime listener from the old weekend on the blaze days. Wow. Bear is original Saturday squad. OSS. You sure have grown over the years. I love to see people succeed. Bear, I really appreciate that. And it's awesome. You've been with me from those early days, man. It's Bear. We're going to be at we're going to be at uh, next next February, it'll be 10 years of me doing radio. Next February, 10 years, man. Whew. Are there any books, articles, or sources you can recommend about Vladimir Putin? I'm interested in learning about his life and career, but I don't really know where to start. And I obviously don't know which sources contain verified information instead of propaganda. The man is obviously brilliant, if brutal and murderous, and it seems to me he truly loves his country. Definitely an interesting guy, and I feel I should know far more about him than I do. Bear, a great question, and let me try to approach an answer with it this way. I actually don't know of a great Putin biography, so I can start with that. Um, there's a ton about him on the Internet, and and I'm trying to think of what the best profiles are that I've read of him. You know, I think there's some pretty there's actually been some pretty good stuff on Putin, I believe, in The New Yorker, uh, New Yorker magazine, which is very liberal, very left wing magazine. Don't get me wrong, but I think they've done some good Putin profiles I'm actually right now just finishing up a biography of Stalin by Robert Service, which if you've never read uh, about Stalin before, the Service biography is very digestible, very readable, moves quickly. There's a lot of Stalin biographies. And I'm actually moving to my next book right now because Stalin in some ways, uh, my next book that's related in a sense, because Stalin actively read about and patterned himself in some ways after uh Ivan the Terrible, who was the 16th century monarch of Muscovy, not not technically Russia, but Muscovy included the city of Moscow. And it was a a prince, a principality or a, a state of um, Russian, you know, ethnic Russians. But at that point in time, it was actually the Polish and and what would now be the Baltic states were were regional powers. And Muscovy had lost a lot of its territory to the. Uh, Tatars who were Mongols, the Mongol horde had invaded and taken large pieces of what is now Russia and had and and formerly the Soviet Union was uh, Muslim Tatars had taken control. Anyway, Ivan the Terrible is the basis for some of in my I mean, from what I'm already have read is the basis for some of the most heinous ideas throughout uh, modern history created what essentially would be an early version of the SS. Uh, they dressed all in black. They rode only black horses and they could uh, they could kill, rape, mutilate, murder anyone at will, completely above the law, his own personal police force. 
and not really policing, of course, just essentially a band of state-enabled thugs. And he also fed his rivals to packs of dogs, which you will see if you see the Game of Thrones series comes up with Ramsey Bolton, who's the the psychopath and most evil character perhaps in the whole series, uh, which I believe is taken by uh, George R.R. Martin directly from the truth, the true story of Ivan the Terrible. So uh, that's a long way of saying I got good Stalin biographies and Ivan the Terrible biographies for you, but can't say I know of a great Putin biography. So bear, I will look into that. And thank you for being with me as long as you've had, uh, as long as you have, my friend. Appreciate it. All right, everybody, Shields High.